You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Andrew Doyle. Andrew is a comedian, playwright, journalist, and satirist from Northern Ireland. Um, he co-wrote the fictional character Jonathan Pye with actor Tom Walker, and also created the satirical character Titania McGrath. He is the host of the show Free Speech Nation on GB News. And um, today I uh, would like to talk to him primarily about his book, Free Speech and Why It Matters, which was published this year. Um, Welcome, Andrew. Hello, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, Before we begin, I just wanted to say that I absolutely loved the book. Um, Thank you very much. I I gather this happens to you a lot, but I was not a huge fan of Titania McGrath. (laughs) And I I have enjoyed some of Jonathan Pye's rants, but I was less, I think it wasn't really uppermost in my mind that you were involved in Jonathan Pye, and I really associated you with primarily with Titania. Yes. Um, and it's not really my style of humor. And yes, so well. I, I I kind of never thought of you as a very serious person. Um, and <laughs> on reading the book, my view has completely changed. Well, you know, humor is incredibly subjective. And it's, you know, everyone has a different point of view when it comes to humor. And uh, that's why, you know, whenever I see a comedian that I don't find funny, I, I won't say that comedian's not funny. I'll say, I don't find that comedian funny because I'm fully aware that other people will. <laughs> right. I actually, um, I tend to err on the side of not finding things funny, which ah. is not something I'm happy about, but not really something I can change. No, this um, is an innate <laughs> innate aspect to your character. And that's fine. Yes. <laughs> you know? In fact, uh, it's probably a good thing because a lot of people, when they uh, don't find something funny, and other people do, they get angry about it. That's something I've seen quite a lot of. Uh, so maybe not not having a sense of humour at all is a good thing. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go quite so far as to say not at all. <laughs> no, I know. I was um, only joking. <laughs> but the only, the only person really whose edgy humour reliably makes me laugh is my boyfriend. Right, um, yeah. And, uh, but I do think that satire doesn't necessarily need to be funny. That's not its only no, it, purpose. I totally agree. I, th- I think it's, I mean, with Titania, it's uh, often just uh, uh, a, a mild, and I do mean mild, exaggeration of what actual activists say. Mm. And so mm. um, it, it doesn't matter to me if, I mean, sometimes it will be constructed as a joke. More often than not, it won't be. It, it will be an attempt to replicate the logic of that mindset, in which case I don't need that to be funny. I don't necessarily want it to be, you know, so it's... Um, it, it's yeah I, I think a lot of people make this mistake and they assume that um comedy and satire are the same thing and they're 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 absolutely not yes i think um 
Oh, when the the Nazi pug dog thing with Count Dankula, Marcus Nietzschean, yeah. um, was happening. Um, for for non UK listeners, uh, this is the guy who made a YouTube video in which he trained his girlfriend's pug dog to do the Hitler salute and to respond to phrases like gas the Jews. And I believe you made a little documentary um, interviewing uh, Meechen. Um, yeah, I, ma- I made two, actually. I made I made a documentary for, for Spiked, and then I made one for the BBC the year after. So I've, I, I, was, I was quite um, not involved in it, but I was quite uh, immersed in it, shall we say. Yes. I will, I will link to both of those in the show notes and to anything else we mention in passing. So don't worry okay. about, um, about having to spell out where to find things. I'll put it all in the show notes. Um, right. I mean, that, I think it was ab- absolutely wrong that he, he was prosecuted by the Scottish courts. Yeah. Um, and was, um, has been made to pay a fine, I believe. Yes. Um, it's 800 pound fine. Yes. I believe he refused, but then they, simply garnish your wages yeah Um, i mean originally what he'd done is he donated the 800 pounds to a children's hospital uh mm. and then um and and was prepared to go to jail for for Mm. this Mm. uh, because of the principle um but what happened was these the scottish court and i don't know how they did this but apparently this is quite standard they just took the money out of his bank account so so he he didn't have a choice in the end yes um i mean i think that i i didn't find his I didn't find that video in any way funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually found it a, a little bit offensive, but I yeah. absolutely did not think that, I don't even think he it should have been taken down from YouTube, let alone yeah. he should have gone to, uh, he should have been prosecuted for it. Well, and the offense, it, like like humor, is incredibly subjective. Yes. So, you know, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with you finding it offensive. Or I, I understand why people would find it offensive. From, from my perspective, it's no more or less offensive than, than Mel Brooks um, and the producers and his Springtime for Hitler skit, mm-hmm. because the premise is, pre- is pretty similar. Mm. Um, but, but I do understand that other people might, might react instinctively against the, the choice of phrasing um, and that kind of thing. However, in that video, of course, he did explain the joke, which a comedian yes. is never meant to do, but he explained the joke in the <laughs> yes. context of the video, which the prosecution willfully ignored. I mean, they explicitly did so. They said they, they, they get to decide the context, which is just wrong, of course. Yes, they said that the intent was irrelevant, which is yes, extraordinary. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I would even go further. I think that if... If he had trained his pug dog to make the Nazi salute because he was a neo-Nazi and a supporter of Hitler, I still yes. think it should be okay for yes. the video so to be up. Um, this is the point. This is the point. I mean, the, of course, actually, a, an authentic neo-Nazi would never do such a thing because, of course, it belittles <laughs> Hitler mm, and belittles mm. the movement. That's why uh, you had the case during the Second World War when the Finnish man Tor Borg was. Uh, arrested by the Gestapo for doing precisely the same thing. He trained his dog to do a Hitler salute, ended up calling the dog Hitler as a nickname, and, and the Gestapo arrested him. Eventually, they dropped the charges. Uh, the Scottish courts did not. So that suggests a certain militancy about them, uh, if, if they are indeed in excess of the Gestapo on this point. But, but yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because if, you, if a, a neo-Nazi wants to express his or her views... Um, yeah, I think they should be allowed to express those views, even though I find them utterly vile. Um, for one thing, it, it identifies these people in society. You know, you, we, we can we can 
we can challenge protest against all the rest of it. We can, we can ridicule, we can do something about it if we know who these people are. And if they're willing to out themselves like that, that can only be a good thing. But also, um, if, if an authentic neo-Nazi had produced a video in which their dog was mimicking uh, a Zeke Heil salute, um, the likelihood of that having any kind of radicalizing effect is precisely zero. And I think yeah. that was the, that's the case. You see, the, the, the prosecution was suggesting that the video would, that he was trying to recruit Nazis to his cause, which is so self-evidently absurd. Yeah. And even if he were doing that, it could not possibly be effective. Right. I think even if he were doing so and there were a chance of it being effective, it should be, um, I mean, I take a pretty strong line on the free speech mm. stuff. Yes, I think yes. even in those cases, it should, he should not have been fined. Um, but what people well, should have done is respond. Um, yes. There are better ways to challenge, to challenge uh, terrible ideas than s- silencing them. There are better ways. Absolutely. Um, so I want to dive in a little bit to the book. Um, mm-hmm. And he- my friend Helen Pluckrose um, and my predecessor's editor at ARIO reviewed the book for ARIO. And in her review, she says she talks about a number of important works on free speech. And she said mm. she would recommend all of these books to, to uh, people interested in the topic, but everyone interested in the topic should begin with your book. And having read your book, um, I I couldn't agree more. It's a much better primer than, for example, the Nigel Warburton's little book, um, Free yes. Speech, A Very Short Introduction, um, which has has its strengths, but I think in some places really misunderstands the subject. Um, I, I'll be honest, I haven't read that book, so oh, okay. I, I can't comment on that one. Um, I've well, read a number of books on free speech, but not that one. <laughs> yes. I mean, there are a number of ex- excellent books on free speech, and I pr- particularly recommend um, former guest of this podcast, Greg Lukianoff's book, um, Unlearning Liberty, and yes. also Nadine Strossen's book, which is called uh, Hate. Yes. Um, why we should I, – I, I, the subtitle is something like why we should combat it with speech, not censorship. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I was aware that there, were, there, are, there are other books um, – you know, outlining the case for free speech. I suppose my 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 goal was very specifically to create, as you put it, a primer to 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 make something that's very accessible, uh, that covers um and and restates the case because I, I feel that 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 needs to be done as much as possible at the moment. It's abs. I mean, the book is absolutely superb. It's a very short little book. Um, I read it in pretty much. I read it in one sitting. Yeah, I think yes. I read it in one sitting. Um. It's readable in a couple of hours, and yes. it. Um, uh, I wasn't aware. Um, I mean, you do have a PhD, but I suppose I was also because of Titania. I'm, I'm so sorry. You must get this a lot. I <laughs> I just wasn't aware of what a kind of um, uh, how insightful um, it's a it's. You know, this is a book written clearly by someone who is an intellectual, um, who is extremely well informed. It's very succinct and it's also absolutely beautifully written. Um, the prose is just a constant delight. The arguments are really nuanced, careful, and extremely persuasive. And you cover just about every aspect that is important to the current debate and to our current um, culture. And um, 
but in a way that isn't at all um, needlessly inflammatory. I say needlessly. I mean, I think it's also okay, of course, for things to be inflammatory. Yes. There is a place for that. But this is not an inflammatory book. It's absolutely a persuasive, convincing book. Um, I love it. I think it well, should be you. required reading for everyone, except that I don't believe in coerced, coerced no, of reading. Of course. I mean, what, one, of my hopes is that, <laughs> one of my hopes to... is that it would, it would be picked up by schools and things like that, because I, mm. I just think that it's important to make the argument to young people. And um, I, th- I suppose um, I do really appreciate those comments. And I, I understand that, for instance, a, a character like Titania is bound to be divisive because, uh, because of the nature of satire always is, you know, it, 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 it has that effect, but with this, I very much, I, I wanted to write a book so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't put people off if they have reservations about free speech. In other words, I'm, I'm not, I'm not coming at it from a uh, aggressive perspective and saying, oh, you know, all these people who disagree with me are idiots, you know, because because I just don't think that's persuasive. I think rather take people's concerns seriously and 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 then address them. That that's the that's the I suppose the the the, the approach I've taken. Yeah, I'm trying to, I want to read part of it. Um, it's really hard for me to work out which which part to read because um, I have underlined about half of the book um, as I was going along. Um, uh, let's take the chapter. I'm going to read, each of the chapters are very brief, and mm-hmm. I'm going to read the, the chapter on um, self-censorship, which is called the new conformity. Yes. To give give listeners a taste of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the implications for self-censorship are as troubling for the general population as they are for artists. When George Orwell wrote his essay on the English people in 1944, he was able to assert that extremely few are afraid to utter their political opinions in public and there are not even very many who want to silence the opinions of others. This sentence could not be written with any confidence today. The phenomenon of shy voters, as evinced by wildly inaccurate opinion polls in both the United Kingdom's European Union referendum of 2016 and the United States elections of 2016 and 2020, is an example of what the economist Timur uh, Timur Kuran has called preference falsification, whereby one's true opinions are withheld in favour of more socially acceptable alternatives. When our elected representatives fall prey to this tendency, it makes a sham of political discourse, reducing it to a pantomime of heroes and villains. Preference falsification is not exclusive to politics. As moral norms shift and the opinions of yesterday become not only unfashionable but prescribed, our willingness to share our authentic feelings is inhibited. William Hazlitt had this in mind when he said that if you set your face against custom, people will set their faces against you. As social creatures, our fear of unpopularity is innate. Yet to repress the truth is to leave unchecked a parasite gnawing at the soul. We make ourselves vulnerable because we are colluding with those we have deceived in what amounts to an artificial reality. The pressure to lie corrals us into a morally compromising position where, for the sake of our own sanity, 
we learn to believe our own fictions, condemned to live as actors who have forgotten we are playing a role. More often than not, preference falsification is a symptom of the desire for an easy life. Conflict is hard. The appeal of ideologies is that they absolve us of the obligation to think for ourselves. Many, if not most, are willing to sacrifice their freedom of speech and independent thought for the consolations of certitude. It is in the interest of the powerful to encourage this kind of docility and thereby beget a flock of industrious sheep. Whatever the motive, desire to be liked, fear of animosity, submission to authority for the stability it brings, we find that in many cases the greatest threat to free expression comes from ourselves. In On Liberty, 1859, John Stuart Mill repeatedly emphasises the danger of outsourcing our moral agency to the putative wisdom of the crowd. Mill understood that our freedom of speech is not imperiled solely by the state's abuse of power, but also by what he describes as the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling. His treatise is a cogent vindication of the primacy of the individual. The implications for higher education are especially dire. Historically, attacks on academic freedom have come from external political forces. One thinks of how intellectuals were consigned to labour camps during the Chinese Cultural Revolution or the present-day Turkish government's incursions against the institutions of higher education. In modern liberal democracies, the most pressing threats arise within the system itself. Largely, this is down to lack of viewpoint diversity among teaching staff. According to one study, less than 12% of academic staff are right-leaning as compared to roughly half of the national population. The expectation to conform to a particular political and ideological worldview has encouraged many academics to self-censor and circumscribe the career prospects of those who do not. A 2020 report found that one in three conservative scholars claim to self-censor for fear of consequences to their career. I'm going to skip over a couple of examples, the Christakis's. Um, yes. I've interviewed uh, Nicholas on this podcast and also um, the case of Evergreen State College. And I, um, I've also interviewed um, uh, Benjamin Boyce about yes. that in, in some detail um, and Brett Weinstein. Um, so I'm going to skip over those examples and go back to the argument. With students demanding intellectual safety, occasionally in the most bellicose and intimidating manner, it is not surprising that academics have learned to be reticent when it comes to expressing views that deviate from the norm. The cost to the intellectual well-being of society can hardly be overestimated. Just as great art flourishes where eccentricity is tolerated, Academic innovation depends upon those who do not conform to received wisdom or, at the very least, are willing to see it tested. Mill asserted that the, the amount of eccentricity in a society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, mental vigour and moral courage it contained. An academic environment in which nonconformist viewpoints are mistrusted is a virtual guarantee of stultification. As Joanna Williams argues in her book, Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity, 2016, personal freedom is a prerequisite for both a critique of conventional knowledge and a search for the new. 
Self-censorship is not to be confused with choosing our words with diligence, which is the duty of anyone who wishes to participate in civilized society. This was the key idea behind the political correctness movement of the late 1980s and early 1990s, which for all its miscalculations and occasional lapses into zealotry, helped to cultivate a consensus on politeness. The sledgehammer tactics of contemporary cancel culture have little to do with political correctness as traditionally understood. Tacit social contracts concerning polite speech in the workspace, schools or public spaces is hardly a controversial notion. We all adhere to such principles in one form or another, albeit with some inevitable sticking points and disagreements along the way. Cancel culture is a mutated form of political correctness that seeks to police language and thought alike. It is a type of soft authoritarianism that accentuates the problems of division and intolerance as it attempts to mitigate their effects. It is to the advantage of those who wish to deny cancel culture to conflate the political correctness movement of the late 20th century with the problems we face today. It enables them to characterize the debate, caricature the debate in tabloid terms, PC versus non-PC or snowflake versus anti-snowflake. Whereas in reality, it is closer to Mill's conception of the struggle between liberty and authority. I'm, I'm skipping a little part, but um, self-censorship then is not just a matter of holding back on expressing ourselves out of fear that we might be attacked for our candor or unfairly stigmatized for holding contentious views. It is the inescapable product of a culture in which discussion of sensitive topics has become potentially career-ending with little possibility of redemption. Ultimately, however, self-censorship is a choice, even at a time when speaking out can have ruinous personal consequences. Conformity and dishonesty for the sake of self-preservation are understandable, but are an affront to our conscious conscience and dignity. We might avoid the ire of the bullies in the short term, but the eventual impact of our collective silence will be an enervated and infantile culture. That was a slightly longer passage than I was planning to read, but it (laughs) hung together so well that I didn't want to stop in the middle. Um, Well, you read it very well, (laughs) better than I would have done. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Let's... um, um, so I think it's it's wonderful the way you differentiate between cancel culture and political correctness. Um, political correctness is about basically you're arguing uh, self-chosen restrictions on speech yes. in order to be more respectful and polite, whereas yeah. cancel culture is more about um, trying to actually get people fired or make them unemployable for mm even tackling contentious issues. Yes. Um, not even necessarily saying something abusive. And for expressing those views, not only in the workplace, but anywhere where one expresses views, including on, on social media, which has yes. become, as you say, the de facto public square. That's right. I think the one of the key features of cancel culture is that so often... Uh, the the quote unquote crime, you know, is 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 re- relatively innocuous. It's it's sometimes just an opinion, uh, and uh, that will you know. And we saw that with the case of Maya Forstater, who ended up in court uh, having to challenge the uh, 
the court because um, of her opinion uh, about uh, biological essentialism or the difference between men and women, you know. And and so you don't even have to be uh, abusive for for the people for cancel culture to come down and target you. I mean, sometimes it is the case that that happens with abusive people or people who say genuinely hateful things. More often than not, it's 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 simply a difference of opinion, that, and that's what I think is is particularly disturbing about it. You know, even to raise the question, even to have, even to ask for a discussion, uh, can lead to your cancellation. One of the things I think, a couple of the things that really uh, stuck out for me within the book, um, one of them is that you, even though you 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 certainly give a lot of um, consequentialist arguments for free speech, mm-hmm. um, the idea that in fact censorship is counterproductive in its aims. Yes. You also make an argument for um, freedom of speech as an essential kind of part of human dignity, um, mm-hmm. which for me is very important. I I take the view that even if we can't prove the consequentialist argument, yes, um, which I, th- I think we, we can, um, but even if we couldn't prove that, it's it seems that if you take away people's freedom of thought, um, you are really taking away something that makes them human. And um, you can't, as as you say in the book, it's difficult to envisage freedom of thought without freedom of speech because we, yeah. um, many of us basically form our thoughts through uh, writing or speaking them. And yes. We adjust them as we dis- as as we hear feedback on them. We think aloud. We get um, it's through discussion and and through kind of exposure to other people's ideas that our thoughts actually get honed. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is why, for example, whenever I'm writing an article, I always begin by writing a Twitter thread of my opinions on the on yes. the thing. Yeah. Um, and Twitter. Despite the the fact that many people describe Twitter Twitter as a kind of cesspool, I find the fact that on Twitter you no matter what you say, you always above a certain number of followers, let's say from five thousand followers on, whatever you yeah. say, you get pushback. Yes, you do. So uh, some of it is merited, and some of it is just abusive. Exactly, and, and, but and and you you can just disregard the abuse and focus on the i think you're right to do it i mean one of the one of the guiding principles as i was writing the book is i was always always thinking in terms of what would be the counter argument to the point i'm making and then i I was attempting to address that at each and every step yeah and i think that's that is important um i think what you say about the consequentialist argument is very is very key i mean i I go into great detail about media effects theory and about the fact that we, we we know that actually there isn't this uh, uh, causal relationship between mass media consumption and public behaviour. But even if there were, you know, what, what would ha- if they if that were the case? If we could say that violent movies do create more violence in society, would we then curb uh, the uh, the artists' right to depict violence? And that's a, that's a very interesting question. Thankfully, we I mean, it's a knotty one, actually. We, we actually don't have to address it because it, we know it's not true because yeah. we have had so much research into this. And that's, the, that's something that I think is, uh, yeah, I, I love having theoretical debates and things, you know, what if, that's, that's great. But, but so many people within the, or certainly so many free speech skeptics seem to take on faith this view, which has already been debunked. And that to me seems 
very odd. It's almost like an unwillingness to engage in in reality. Yeah, um, there's a there's an enormous fear of influence, um, mm. and I, I wish I could remember which um, book this is from because it's not my thought, but um, we uh, we use that word in a way the wrong way round. So, for example, mm. if I say T.S. Eliot influences my poetry. You can yes. immediately see how this is not something, even though it's framed that way, it's not something T.S. Eliot does. Yes, or, that's or right. Even, even if he were still alive, would be able to do. It's yes. something I do, i.e. Um, what we should say when we say, uh, when we talk about influence, we should talk about the other way around. We should say that the, the, uh, the poet, for example, borrows, um, yes. uh, writes a homage to parodies, um, imitates, uh, even yeah, plagiarizes. Uh, but it's it's the person who is, the responsibility should be with the person doing the action, not with the person saying the words. There's uh, such a leap. In, is, isn't except there in case of direct incitement. Um, yes, exactly. I mean, you, you remember after the, after the Christchurch massacre and various New Zealand bookstores removed Jordan Peterson's books, um, because some activists had decided that that book had caused the massacre. And this is a nonsense, not least because the book is explicitly opposed to tyranny and 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 there's nothing in the book that in any way could be said to promote violence. So, I mean, it's clear they hadn't read the book. That's the first thing. But but also it, it's it it's an odd leap of faith to to. And there's something quite lazy about it. Tabloids used to do this all the time. I remember the um, the James Bolger murder, which occurred when I was very young. Yes. Um, Get off uh, my lawn, Andrew. Who, what's that phrase in relation to? Uh, well, you said it occurred when you were very young. Oh, I see. Sorry, I get it. Okay. Um, well, it did. And um, I, I remember the tabloids at the time blaming, blaming the film Child's Play 3. Because it was said that the 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 murderers had seen the film, but um, as it ha- transpires, they hadn't. But even if they had, again, it's 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 a very simplistic idea that someone would watch a horror film and then reenact uh, the events, and and it's a very lazy way of thinking. I think. It, well, I, I I suppose what it is, it, it is it. How can I put it? I think it 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 means that we don't have to think anymore. It, it's almost like problem solved. We've worked it out. Mm. It's it's you know and and it and it it means that we don't have to engage with the complexities of reality, you know. If we can just say people commit crimes because of these st- these various stimuli, and then we no longer have to, to have to look into and delve into the reasons why the actual reasons why it happened. Yeah, I I mean it's not just that most people have a healthy perception of the difference between fiction and reality, and fiction mm. is a kind of imaginative playground. Um, Rather than, uh, rather than uh, something that we directly translate into action, um, yes. But also that even when it's nonfiction writing, uh, we all know this phenomenon of when you're already convinced of something. Um, yes. Every argument, every further argument in favor of the thing, sounds really persuasive, and every argument yes. against it, you're nitpicking it for for holes in the argument yes, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, human beings are just not so easily swayed by things. Yeah, 
That's true. I mean, I think it's, it comes down to have a faith in humanity, doesn't it? I think I think there's a very pessimistic view of of human beings that that comes from the pro censorship side. Ultimately, that's what it is. They they don't trust the masses. They think the masses are susceptible to corruption uh, by the various material that they ingest. And you know, I I like to think. Well, I do. I I have the view that human beings are, have far more agency than that. Mm. Well, I think I I don't know if it's pessimistic or optimistic because I think people are also not easily persuaded by good good arguments. Right. Um, it's just um, the the kind of what it is that causes people to do evil things. I just um, I don't know. I don't think that's been solved, and it's certainly not been solved by the idea that it's because they were exposed to specific in influences. No, I suppose, but like I say, it, it, it has an appeal to be able to put it down to that, much as um, uh, various religions have uh, historically put it down to this, this notion of evil and the influence of Satan. It's, it's, it's something, it tidies up this very messy business. And, uh, and of course, yeah, there are all sorts of reasons why someone would behave in a terrible way. Um, and it's such a big question, um, but but what I can what we can be sure of is that it isn't simply the case of uh, the book made made me do it. You know, it's it's not. You know, we don't take the the word of the man who murdered John Lennon that that J D Salinger made him do it by writing the Catcher in the Rye. We all we all know that this isn't true, um, and yet we seem to be adopting that position. On a on a broad scale, or at least a lot of people are, and you know we we don't. I mean, there have been studies into the effects of of even propaganda, and 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 the studies seem to suggest that propaganda only has any kind of effect when its targets are already predisposed to believe the message that is being conveyed. So even in that case, uh, we know that, that that people aren't so easily swayed as as a, as a lot of free speech skeptics would have us believe. Mm. Well, I think that it. Um, they probably can can be swayed when they're really um, trapped in a in an information monoculture. Mm. Um, so in in a place like North Korea, for example, yes, that when only one message is coming at you, then it's very difficult to break free from that kind of Absolutely. overarching propaganda. Yeah, of course, I mean you can only you can only know things that are knowable. And if 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 the information is simply not there for you to know, then yes, absolutely, you will only hear one side of the story. Um, yes, if, I do accept yeah. that. Even in that case, um, I was listening to Yonmi Park's interview with Jordan yes. Peterson, and she theorized that part of the reason why um, people under the regime are uh, don't question the absurdity of it more strongly is is also simply because they're hungry. And yes, when yes, you're absolutely. in that state of starvation, you can't think clearly, and all your thoughts and all your thoughts and fantasies center around food. Um, yeah. absolutely. It is. It is not impossible for someone within the midst of a totalitarian regime to question it and to find ways to 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 see through it. But it is it is harder, and particularly as you say. I mean, that's an interesting point about the malnourishment, which is of course widespread there. Uh, yeah. It is impossible to do anything in the, in those situations. Um, of course, this this kind of misperception about the infinite 
malleability of people is a is a perennial one. But in mm. the book, you also outline um, some links between a particular um, incarnation of of that phenomenon, which comes from the influence of the postmodernists. Um, yes, talk about that a little bit. Yes, well, I think the postmodernists have a lot to answer for in terms of their uh, relentless em- emphasis on language as the means by which we c- construct our view of reality. And of course, they weren't saying uh, that l- l- language creates reality. It- it's about our perception of, of of reality. They weren't saying there's no such thing as truth, merely that we cannot grasp it and that the way in which we perceive truth is fundamentally linguistic. And And they were very ill-equipped to deal with, for instance, the visual arts, uh, sculpture, dance, you know, these sorts of things that are are not linguistic in nature. Um, And and there's a very good reason for that. And I think if you, if you suggest, and in fact, you know, and you could bring in, I think I mentioned the the Frankfurt School and their, their notion that, that the popular culture was, you know, a, a kind of, opiate of the masses something that was that you know that was the reason why the revolutionary project hadn't worked um was because people were being uh, desensitized by by popular culture and and there, there is this again it goes back to that idea of the the way in which the masses can be influenced but in addition to that the this deconstruction of language and language the, the, the power that so many of their power structures are conveyed through language i think we're seeing those ideas, uh, they linger, shall we say, in the modern social justice movement. I don't think it's direct because I don't mm-hmm. think the, the contemporary social justice movement has much to do with postmodernism, really, insofar as it presents a new grand narrative, a new meta narrative, the, the very thing that the postmodernists were, 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 were wanting to deconstruct and, des- and destroy. But I think it is a kind of uh, watered down, misunderstood application of postmodernism. And I think you see these residual elements of it. And I think in terms of the power of language to, you know, you hear phrases like words are violence. You know, you hear phrases like uh, that joke will normalize hate towards this group or, or whatever. And all of this stuff, I think you could trace its origins to the to the postmodernists. Yeah, to the idea that language kind of reifies that by, by um, the way we use language sort of just affects our reality and the way that we exercise power over other people is through language. Through language. And I think it's more than just that it, uh, I think it's that it creates our reality. I think that that's, that's, that's what they're arguing. I, there's, there's a very funny thing that, um, because, because, you know, when I was doing my doctorate in Renaissance literature and every, you know, all of the fashionable writers and thinkers at the time were saying that homosexuality, for instance, was a social construct and did not exist until the word was coined in the late 19th century medical discourses. Mm. Um, and, and there's a, there's a very funny moment in one of Camille Parley's essays where she points out the absurdity of that and that it's like explorers coming across Antarctic penguins for the first time and saying, you did not exist before we named you. And the, you know, and just from my own reading of, of, um, of various writers and poets of the, of the, of the 16th century, and you can see these, you know, for instance, Richard Barnfield, a very clear example of someone who is almost certainly a gay man, um, but but he, even if he weren't, his 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 sonnets are the attempt to express a gay uh, mindset, as in someone who is pre- predominantly or exclusively attracted to members of of his own sex. The fact that he didn't have the word homosexual or gay to describe himself does not mean that he was not homosexual or gay, or indeed that the the speaker of these sonnets 
is not homosexual because he clearly is. Mm. So um, th- this idea that the reality only sort of springs into being once you have a name for it is very much embedded into this mindset and it's just wrong. Mm. Yeah, I, you, you, you're thinking of, I think, uh, is it Foucault who says um, the sodomite was a temporary aberration yes, the homosexual as a species? Something he says that like in the that. history of history of sexuality. Yes. yes, and 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 that's interesting as well because I don't think when we there were there was a discourse called sodomy and so, and this was in existence during the 16th century, but nobody self-identified as a sodomite. Mm. You know, uh, it, it's and in fact the word is is very unclear even in those terms. I mean, if we mm. just to take my that time period, it, it was often associated, for instance, with usury. Uh, it wasn't necessarily sexual, oddly enough. Um, and and I mean, it, for the most part, it was, but it wasn't necessarily. And so I, I'm not, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I mean, he, I think Foucault and I think Foucault's history of sexuality in particular and the way it has been interpreted is largely responsible for this view of the new invention of homosexuality, which is just so, so broad. I mean, I take sexuality as one example, but you could apply it to many things. Yes, yes. Um I, when I was um, um, teaching the Well of Loneliness, um, mm. so which is often uh, considered the first "quote unquote" lesbian novel, I think it's nineteen twenty twenty-six. Sorry, twenty-six. Did you say? I thought it was twenty-six, but I could be You're wrong. You're probably but... right. I have a bad memory for exact dates, um, <laughs> but many readers, many women readers, said. They had they had always felt that way, only sexually attracted to other women, but they had never they had thought they were the only ones. Yes. And they had never yes. known that this there was a they had not only no name for it, but they thought it was a complete idiosyncrasy. Yes. Um, but isn't that in- that's fascinating? Yeah. I mean there, oh, by the way, we're both wrong. I've checked, it's nineteen twenty-eight. Oh. Um but, <laughs> but but isn't that interesting that so yes, exactly. So even when they didn't have the word for it or the conceptualization for it, or they, that no one else was saying it, they still felt it. And this is actually a really common thing amongst a common experience to gay people. But I, I probably not anymore, given that we live in a culture where uh, people are so commonly openly gay. But certainly when I was a child, you know, I think a lot of the, the gay people who grew up from my, my parents' generation, for instance, um, share this experience of, of feeling exclusive desire towards their own sex. But not, but thinking there was something wrong with them, and that there wasn't, this wasn't even a thing, you know, that it was almost, you know, if you think about the uh, in in Forster's novel Morris, and he goes to the doctor about this because he's saying that you know this is something that is, it's an illness, you know, that's the way he perceived it. I mean, that's very interesting. I think that they they mm. could have, and yet there were people, there were lesbian communities. There's a very interesting novel by Compton Mackenzie called. Extraordinary women. Have you, are you familiar yes, with this? Yes. Now, and and what I mean, I think it's a I think it's a fabulous book. Um, that was actually written at the same time as the Well of Loneliness, and and was due to be published a few months before. They actually held off on publication precisely because the Radcliffe Hall's novel was coming out. And um, it, it, again, it, and and uh, Extraordinary Women ended up being the first book about lesbian life sold in British bookshops because, of course, the Well of Loneliness became the one the obscenity trial and. And somehow, Compton Mackenzie's book slipped under the net. I've no idea how that happened. Um, 
the kind of Streisand effect. So I think the obscenity trial brought the well of loneliness to people's attention. Yes, exactly, exactly. But it, but it, but it's definitely that in, that you know that if you take the depiction of the lesbian community on Capri in 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 Mackenzie's novel because it's based on real people. All of that is true. It's it's a Romana Clef rather than a rather than a novel. Um, so, so within certain communities, when they had terminology, when they had shared discourse, uh, the reality emerged but the reality was still there even without those things there was still lesbian desire even if it could not be conceived of in the mind of the person feeling it does that make sense yeah and i Absolutely. think that's very interesting I, th- I think i think it's i think it just shows the shortcomings of the postmodernist obsession with the power of language i, I you know i i think so i think it does well, I think the um, the the version of the Sapir Whorf hypothesis that suggests that um, if you don't have a word for something, you don't have a conception of that thing, mm. um, has been pretty robustly um, disproven. Um, yes. I mean, it, uh, as uh, as I think, there's a book called um, "Through the Language Through the Language Glass." I mm-hmm. forget the author's name, but he says uh, he points out that English does not have a future tense. Um, nevertheless, of course, we have a perception of the future and we have a way of expressing the future um, using present what, tense. What does he mean I'm by going that? going to do uh, X and Y. He oh, means see. that, uh, like, in, for example, in Spanish, you can say, um, iré a la playa, um, and that's, that's a future tense verb. Whereas we say, um, we express it using uh, an auxiliary verb, Mm-hmm. Like I, I a statement of intent, like I will go to the beach tomorrow. Yes, yes. Um, or, I see. or we use this present tense. Uh, I am going to. I am going to. Um, yes. So we actually don't, strictly speaking, English doesn't have a future tense. But of course, we we can conceptualize the future, and we have a way of of talking about the future. Yes, that's interesting. I think exactly. I mean, we don't need. There's, there's so many examples of this where, where language falls short and doesn't cover a certain concept or a certain idea, but the concept nonetheless exists. You know? Yeah, and people find a way of expressing it well, with that, the language well, that the, they have. This was the point of my my doctoral thesis. Was, you know, was looking at uh, homoerotic poetry expressing a, a, a gay subjectivity, but there's no they, they, they don't have a word for it. <laughs> you know, but it's still there. And in fact, it was. It, it was actually reading that. It was reading that kind of literature that that made me because I was pretty much a, as an undergraduate. Um, this stuff was spoon fed to us. This 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 notion of the the social construction, the social constructionist ideas, and the idea of of of, of um, uh, reality being being entirely constructed and mediated through language. This was just the given, the norm. It wasn't something anyone challenged, and it it was only actually reading the literature of that period, which particularly fascinated me, that made me realize actually, hang on. This is a gay man, you know. They've been telling me this can't be the case, but it is, and and I think it's it was that and it was that experience, and I think that that we can broaden that out to the to the notion of free speech generally, because one of the the, the, the main notions that free speech skeptics will say is that if you don't have, for instance, the discourse of homophobia, in other words, if we censor all homophobic speech, then homophobia becomes an impossibility. But that's not true, mm. and that mm. that's. That I think is at the that is I think is at the heart of this this impulse to control speech because it's a utopian view that if you just control what people can say, then certain 
thought processes become impossible. And that's what brings us back to Orwell, because that is, of course, what the party is attempting to do in 1984. Mm. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't work, because there Winston is thinking outside the box. Yeah, it's trivially easy to get people to lie to us or mm. to... Um, I mean, in, men, in many circumstances, it's trivially easy to get them to lie to us or to censor what they have to say. I think anybody who, like me, has ever taught a university class um, yeah. knows that. It's very easy to get students to shut up. What's hard <laughs> is to get them to talk. Um, and um, it's because, as you point out, we are, we are a social species of ape. Um, we care about our social reputations Mm -hmm. uh, we want to be liked and we also want to be successful. And for that, we depend on other people um, liking us, basically, and endorsing us. Yes. Um, and so uh, we can we can err on the side of censorship so quickly. And there Absolutely. seems to be this uh, reversed kind of fear among people on the left in particular um, I don't want to imply that free speech is a partisan issue, um, mm. and you're very careful to make that distinction in the book. Um, but one reason I think why a lot of us free speech advocates are focusing on censorship coming from the left mm. is both because that censorship is new and because it's more subtle, nuanced, and less easy to recognize. Um, but and now I've now I've completely lost the train of well, what well, I was well, it, about it, to it, say. Sorry. <laughs> it, it also, I mean, it also doesn't um, call itself censorship. I mean, this mm, is the problem. Is mm. so so much of the problem with the critical social justice movement is that they will redefine terms as they go along while denying that they are doing so, and and so therefore, you know, whereas Mary Whitehouse, I think, literally used the phrase "ban this filth." Mm, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't think, well, and you know, when it's coming from the. Uh, the Christian right, it's very clear what that is, and it's also very clear how you can how you can oppose it. But when someone is 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 attempting to censor uh, speech, but they don't call it that, they they reconfigure it and they they invent this idea of hate speech, and they and they and they do so from using the language of progressivism. Um, then it becomes a lot harder to, you know. And I, I like I said, I don't think free speech is a partisan issue. I don't think it's anything to do with right or left. I think it mm. should be a universal thing that we can all get behind but i think at the moment what we are facing is a particular threat from those who identify as left i don't necessarily agree that they are mm -hmm. um but i i think that's so that's simply why that that will have to be the focus um at the moment i think there's something very interesting about what you say as well about um uh the idea of of, of pop, you know we don't like to be unpopular and therefore challenging this stuff is hard. I think one of the one of the good things about becoming unpopular and being hated is that it actually clarifies your thought. It means you can think critically <laughs> because you're not trying to impress anyone anymore. Mm. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, yeah, I I hear you. Though so it's also good to try to build bridges and absolutely find points find points of commonality, um, even if you disagree with the other person on most of what they say. Um, you might be able to get them on your side uh, on an important issue. Um, yes, and also it's it's worth listening to everyone because all of us are wrong about all sorts of things. So, you know, there might be someone, and someone can be very wrong about something, but there could be an element of truth to what they're saying that is worth considering. And it's, you know, it's always worth listening. Um, but I think, yes, commonality, absolutely. You know, the, 
I suppose one of the things I was trying to achieve with the book is to find that common ground, you know, say, look, th- these are what we can all agree on. So let's go from there. You know, the, 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 the debate is so distorted that, that free speech skeptics will often say those who want to advocate for unlimited free speech are simply wanting uh, to endorse racism or homophobia or allow these people to, you know, and, and, and of course that's a horrible misreading. Um, and, and actually, I mean, I, I outline it early in the book about, you know, we all, we, the common ground we have is that we all, we all want uh, fairness in society. We all want uh, people to be treated well and not to be uh, discriminated against. And, and that goes for the people who are free speech skeptics, but also for people who are free speech advocates. So there is common ground there. Uh, so then the debate isn't about what we want to achieve. The debate is about uh, how we get there. Mm. Yeah. I, as you point out in the book, so um, censorship from the right has um, traditionally taken the form of authoritarian governments. Yes. So, for example, uh, I mean, free speech is, is extremely imperiled in India at the moment, much yes. more so, I think, than in the West. Um, but it's very obvious for my fellow liberals and left-wingers to see how that is happening mm-hmm. um, because they see journalists being arrested for saying factually correct things about yeah. members of the ruling um, Hindu nationalist BJP party, for example. Um, and I don't get any pushback on that. And that's why, yeah. um, although I think it's important to draw attention to what's happening in India, it's very, very worrying. Um, nevertheless, you know, it's natural to stop and for the discussion to focus on wherever there's pushback. Yes. Um, so people often say, well, why don't I talk more about that? Why do I talk so much about cancel culture or the idea that speech isn't violent? Violence, because when I say it's wrong that these Indian journalists are being arrested, everybody says, yes, it's wrong. Yes, exactly. And, it, and the discussion ends there. Um, whereas when I say, um, there's a very important difference between words and violence, even though words can be very hurtful um, and they obviously can cause harm. You can be so hurt by people's words that you can commit suicide. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, there's this very important difference, which is in the amount of control and choice you have in your response. Um, that mm. if you um, say something nasty about me, um, and I've had many nasty things said about me and I find them very hurtful because I'm a really sensitive person. So it's not mm-hmm. that I'm not affected. I'm often, you know, I often cry over <laughs> bad things that were said to me or about me. I'm much yes. more sensitive than I would like to be. But nevertheless, I do have some options. I can talk to my shrink and talk it through and get, get past it. I yes. can try to be more stoical about it. I can seek sympathy from friends, you know, et cetera. Whereas yeah. if somebody punches me in the nose and breaks my nose, I don't have a choice in what happens to my nose. Exactly. Um, exactly. That's it. It's broken. Um, so I think it's a very, very big, I, it's a huge distinction in it's a very important one. autonomy. Yeah. It's a very important d- distinction. And, and, you know, I, I also think with what, what you say about, you know, we can all agree that state censorship, such as the examples you, you offered for India, are wrong. And we and, and it's a simple 
you know, no, you're not going to get much of a debate on that. What what we're experiencing is is unprecedented, I think, insofar as it is small, uh, very powerful, small groups of very powerful uh, ideologues who are pushing this idea throughout society and creating the circumstances by which people broadly self censor and uh, are are suddenly supportive of of a new form of censorship that comes partly from us and partly from big tech and and partly from the law as well um so it's a, it's just a very it's a much more complex it requires more discussion doesn't it than than the, the this 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 issue of state censorship which strikes me as very clear cut mm. um talking of state censorship um it's obviously not not limited to outside the west mm. um and i so uh, there has been a great deal of censorship um un, under the under the aegis of our own tory government here in the uk mm-hmm. um and that's something that i've written about in in some detail and i i will also link to that in the show notes um but there's there's not only um there's not only a lot of hate speech legislation which can lead to such ridiculous things as Marcus Meachin's yeah. um prosecution. There are these so-called non-crime hate incidents yeah. um where police are empowered to investigate things that people said on social media. Um and the government is now has now drafted an online safety bill yes. with this extraordinary um, verbiage, which suggests, for example, which says that social media companies have a duty of care to their users. And I'm just reading a sentence from your book here uh, about social media censorship. So you say, um, with the rise of social media as the de facto public square, big tech corporations now have dominion over the acceptable limits of popular discourse unelected plutocrats hold more collective power and influence than any national government, only without any of the democratic accountability. Um, So is this your answer to people who argue that social media companies like Facebook and Twitter should have the right to decide who is allowed to use their platforms and what they should be permitted to say? It's interesting because that seems to be the view of people on the right and on the left. So the more libertarian view uh, which is that you know they're private companies they can set their own rules they can do what they want. Uh, we, we don't apply that wholesale though, do we? I mean, we, you know, if if Facebook suddenly decided that it wouldn't allow gay people to speak on their platform, I think we would all have a issue with that. So there are limits to this, and we do understand. You know, it's just it's just having to catch up with with to talk about censorship solely in terms of state censorship in the modern age is is just many decades out of date. And as you've just pointed out, well, the state is now actually, in a sense, not colluding, but putting pressure onto social media companies to enact censorship. And that that is tantamount to a form of state censorship. So, you know, I think this is this is something that people have to wrestle with. And this this argument that they're just private companies, so let's just let them get on with it. They they hold a uh, an oligopoly. You know, they 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 are in control of everything. And and when you a company tries to set up a competitor as it happened with parlor they shut it down this is not you know it's it's astonishing to me there was there was some one writer in the financial times talking about how you know um we've just got to take the mic you know he was criticizing my book and saying that for the free speech debate that, that defending free speech for all 
is out of date and we just have to in the modern age we just have to take the microphone away from certain people it was a really chilling <laughs> analysis actually and i don't trust faceless multi-billion dollar corporations uh to decide on my behalf what i should and shouldn't read or should and shouldn't say it seems very well certainly it's it, ca- it can't possibly be said to be a left-wing position to outsource that kind of power to massive corporations mm. yeah i feel um I feel personally very vulnerable in this regard because um, I'm very conscious of um, how much of, of Ario's readership, how much of our readership of individual articles, for example, comes from people clicking on the articles on Twitter. Um, yeah. And even though I have a relatively small account between us, uh, Ario's account, which I run in my own personal account, reach maybe 50 a uh, thousand people. Um, yeah. and nevertheless, most of our page views are coming from people clicking on articles that have been shared on Twitter. Yes. And most of the attention to our magazine and also all, uh, almost all our funding um, has, and certainly all of our ongoing funding, has basically come from um, things that I've said on Twitter and my nudging yeah. people on Twitter to yeah, we're, we're so dependent, aren't we? In that sense, because that you know, I, I would love to get off Twitter and never go there again, but I'm aware that by doing so, it makes my job a whole lot harder. You know, it's just the reality of living in in the time that we do that that we need a presence on these platforms in order to sustain ourselves. Particularly, like, you know, someone like me who, you know, my my job depends on on on. That, that kind of communication or having the ability to do it. I don't know how I would do it otherwise. Absolutely. There's a lot of power there. There's a lot of power. And and the fact that they have these terms of service that are so nebulous. And, you know, we always hear this, oh, well, you know, if you break their terms of service, they can kick you off. But no one knows what their terms of service are. And they really don't. I mean, if you, re- if you read them yourself, you'll see that actually what they are is phrased in such a way as to suggest that they can pretty much kick you off at whim for any anything, anything that they deem to be a problem and anyone who's been through the appeals process with Twitter will know how Kafka-esque it is. They'll they'll they won't necessarily tell you what you've done. They often won't tell you which tweet it was that caused the ban. And then when you appeal, they'll send an automated response reiterating uh the the things that they said in the first one and and it, you know, it is like the trial. You're not told what you've done wrong. You have to accept it. You appeal it and they just refer back to their original statement. It's I mean, it's it's really you know, if if they were clear in their terms of service, they said, if you sign up to this and if you have this opinion, we will ban you. Well, that would be one thing, but they don't do that. I mean, the number of gender critical feminists who have been kicked off Twitter for not not people who've been abusive. I can understand how uh, if, if people have been explicitly abusive or threatening, they do get kicked off. And that, you know, that's a different question. When people who are so many accounts I'm aware of have been kicked off, who have never said anything offensive at all. They've s- simply expressed an opinion. And it's an opinion that, that uh, Twitter doesn't like. And that's it. You know, this is not this is not going to get us anywhere. I've actually known people who've been kicked off, not even for expressing a controversial opinion, but just because a word in something they tweeted triggered an algorithm. Yes. Uh, so very yes. recently, someone I, I followed closely was kicked off and she posted mostly about hiking um, her boobs and... Um, uh, her her baby cousin and a few other you know subjects like this was yes. mostly personal stuff, and she was just suspended without appeal. 
And it's completely unclear. Nobody knows why that was. No, that can happen. I can only imagine it was automated. So you can't, it's the definition of kind of authoritarianism that you can commit a crime without even knowing <laughs> knowing that well, you're doing so you don't even know what's allowed and what isn't as soon as as soon as twitter decided that they would be monitoring uh, and curating effectively material on their platform they've given themselves an impossible task because uh, they now have thousands of people monitoring speech on their platform but you know uh, and they have to div- they have to uh, rely largely on algorithms for a lot of the censorship that they enact and that that's never going to work there's too many people on twitter and there's too many things being said for this to be a reliable system. And, uh, you know, my view of this would be a, a much better system. I mean, the reason they have the block function is precisely so they don't have to censor because it means that that anyone who, who doesn't wish to see something or who, who's had abusive messages, they can block the user and, and that stops. And that's, that's that, the block function, in fact, is our guarantee of free speech on the platform. What do you say to those annoying people who, who argue um, that no one has a right to a platform. Well, that's not necessarily annoying, insofar as I, I you know, I'm not, I'm not on BBC One every night uh, saying what mm-hmm. I want. I don't have a right to be. <laughs> you know, there are lots of universities that haven't invited me to speak. I don't feel my rights mm-hmm. have been remotely violated. Um, so it is true that when we don't have a, a right to a platform, but as I say, because because the social media giants have created the de facto public square, the, 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 their reach is now, it's incontrovertible. Uh, it is immense and, and there is no competition. Under those circumstances, well, actually, you do have a right, uh, or you certainly have a right to be treated fairly on that platform. And I think that's why we need to update the argument, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, my feeling about the right to a platform argument is that you have a, a right to be heard by the people who want to listen to you. Right. Um, and in that sense, you have a right to a platform. You don't have a right to, um, you You may not be able to get anybody to want to listen to you. Yeah. Um, that in itself is quite difficult. But once you have people who want to listen, so if we take a Twitter account as being a platform, for example, the people yeah. who follow you and converse with you um, are, you have, you have a, a right to communicate with them. To me, yes. you have a moral right to communicate with them. So you have a right to a platform in that sense. You don't yes. have a right to force anybody else to talk to you, read your tweets. Anybody who wants can, has a right to mute you, to block you, etc. Exactly. That's how. That's a good system. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's people are using this exclusive right to a platform to prevent people who want to read some someone or listen to someone from being able to do so and to prevent yes. the person from being able to communicate with those who want to communicate with them exactly you know i mean if if the the if if the social media tech giants you know they, they continually say in their defense whenever they're they're sued whenever something libelous appears on their platform they say they are not responsible because they're not a publisher they're a, they're just a platform, and they don't decide they don't decide what goes on their platform, but they do. So you know, it's the inconsistency of that position that that I find maddening. Uh, you know, if they want to curate material, if they want to ban people for their opinions, uh, uh, opinions that are not particularly controversial, sometimes you know, sometimes quite mainstream opinions. If they want to do that, then they are curating material on their platform. They are a publisher, and they should be held legally uh, responsible for everything that appears on their platform. 
I mean, that's my view of it. Yeah, which would be impossible, of course. Quite. Exactly. So j- just for the sake of consistency, but also just on a moral basis, you know, they they just shouldn't be censoring people, I think, is the, is, is the bottom line. And the reason they do is because of this widespread belief that that language creates harm in the real world. That's that's why they do it. And and as I've said, we, we you know, we know that's not true. So given that we have that, you know, we've already we've already covered that, given that the evidence is in on that. Why on earth they continue to do so, I don't know. And I'm not talking here about illegal content. Obviously, if there is illegal content on their site, they, they, they should be getting rid of that, you know? But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people with opinions, people who debate robustly, maybe people who are rude, you know? If someone, people have the right to be rude to me and abusive to me if that's how they choose to express themselves. And I will choose not to listen and I will just block them. And mm. then it works, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think that there's... Um even if the speech does cause harm, there is this kind of inability to live with the idea of trade-offs, that every freedom comes with trade-offs. And as a leftist, I'm very familiar with a classic kind of trade-off that I accept as a a left-winger is that um, if you have a social security system as a safety net for the more the less prosperous, the more vulnerable, etc. Some people will abuse that system. So yeah. you get free lo- freeloaders. Um, and I am I'm willing to accept that as a trade-off, and I think most leftists are. So I don't understand why, therefore, so few so many people seem unwilling to understand that freedom of speech also comes with trade-offs. It comes with very large trade-offs. Yes. Because if if you allow freedom of speech, you allow bad people to say bad things. Exactly, exactly. Um, and some of those people may be able to influence, although it's always impossible to trace any specific influence back. Um, yes. They may be adding adding to the sum total of bad actions in the world. Um, that that's that can definitely be the case. Um, and as you say, um, even though on its own, um, then Hitler's oratory, for example, probably didn't make people hate Jews who didn't, who weren't already primed towards anti-Semitism. If yeah. he hadn't been such a good orator, he would probably not have been able to take power and hold power for 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 that long. Um, yes. But nevertheless, um, there seems to be this continual kind of uh, utopianism. That we can somehow eliminate harm, and we can somehow stop people from hating. Yes, we can stop them from saying hateful things. We can kind of somehow eliminate hatred from their hearts. But but again, that goes back to that postmodernist idea that things don't exist unless you have the language with which to express mm. them. Mm. But of course, when it comes to an emotion like hate, you absolutely do. That exists irrespective of the language. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is a. a a key point is that you know i would rather live in a world where there weren't neo-nazis that would be great if those people did not exist if those if those people did not say the things that they said but they do exist there's not many of them but they do exist and they do say the things that they say and the question isn't uh when it comes to censoring them it isn't uh, really do i it's the question isn't do i support that person or not because obviously i don't the question is is it wise to, for the sake of shutting down this very marginal group and their rights to speech, uh, is it worth doing that? And at the same time, empowering the state 
to make decisions about what we can and cannot say, because that's really what you're doing there. And that affects all of us. Mm. And that's, that is a, uh, that is a guarantee of future tyranny, I think. And Mm. that is a much, that is much more frightening to me, ultimately. Well, people always naturally want to have power and control. Mm. That's a, a just a, a deep rooted impulse and governments naturally want to have power and control. Um, yeah. And once you relinquish your rights, it's very difficult to get them back again. Oh, yeah. I mean, we know this from history is that you, you relinquish those kind of powers to the government. They, they just don't come back. This is why I'm concerned about the online safety harms bill, the one that you've mentioned that the Tories are pushing through. Similarly, their protest bill troubles me. You know, there, there, there's a, a, a clause in that even to do with the, if, a, if a protest is too noisy, they, they can legitimately storm in with the police and shut it down. I mean, this is, this is to me, just anti-democratic and, and, and troublesome. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to be very vigilant when it comes to all governments, uh, all, all powerful people. And, and, you know, even if they were the, had the best intentions in the world, you know, I mean, I keep hearing with the, with the SNP's hate crime bill. I mean, the, 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 the counter argument I keep encountering, because obviously it's a very draconian bill that mm. seeks to police even what people say in the privacy of their own homes, uh, even to the extent of um, uh, criminalizing the performance of a play if it can be deemed to stir up hatred, even though that's a very unclear term and very subjective term. Um, and the argument I continually hear is, well, yes, but common sense will prevail. You know, we can put this on the statute books, but ultimately no judge or jury is going to convict someone, you know, for, you know, th- I don't buy this idea that common sense will prevail because once something is on the, on the statute books, you leave it open to exploitation by, by all future governments. You know, it's very short-sighted to say, well, we'll just let this slide at the moment because everyone will, you know, everyone will use it sensibly. That's absolutely not the way this works. Yeah, it's I, I it's ex, it's extraordinary. Um, I mean, I think that this is something that people um, I converse with on Twitter. A lot of people on the left who are opposed to the um, anti-critical race theory bills, mm-hmm. um, which are because of they're very vague and broad in their wording. Yes, and especially the ones regarding universities seem to me to be absolutely absurd. I think they're unconstitutional, so I don't think they will be able to, prosecutions under these bills will be able to stand, but I think they will have a chilling effect. Um, And it's very frustrating to me to see a lot of people kind of asking me, well, do you support these bills or are you just a, a hypocrite about free speech? And of course I don't support the bills. And not only that, but I have been, I and of in my small way, and of course, many other people like me have been saying for ages, don't relinquish your freedom of speech because mm. the um, it's a tool that can be used against you by the right. Um, yes, exactly. You know, two can play at this game. You give a yes. really good example. In, uh, you give a little example in the book, historical example, which is um, after the Battle of Cable Street, um, which was... Um, Oh, remind me of the exact date of that. Oh, yes, that's in 1936. Yeah, when neo-Nazis were basically uh, marching through an East End neighbourhood. Yeah, and... this was this was Os- Oswald Mosley and yes. his black shirt movement, and they were marching through the East, East End. And uh, the example I give is that the, it was actually the Labour Party that, that pushed through the public order legislation and said, look, we've got to stop far-right, uh, you know, incursions and uprisings. And... and 
but though that legislation, the public order legislation, uh, it has been used since mostly against left wing protests. Mm. You know, yeah. Thatcher used it to arrest striking miners during the miners' yes. strike. Exactly. Yeah. And that legislation, I mean, those were actually violent thugs. So there was an, ac- an actual physical altercation there. Um, but in a, a fi- uh, you know, thuggery is already criminal. Um, exactly. So it, it, it's it's just one example of the way in which once you once you have something cemented into law, you can't possibly anticipate how it's going to be used, and and particularly when it comes to speech rights, almost certainly it's going to be used against you as well eventually. You know, I find it astonishing whenever left wing accounts get get um, uh, banned from Twitter, and you know they 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 don't understand it and they freak out, and but of course they have sown the seeds for this because they have been supporting big tech censorship, and then it yeah. and then it bites them. And then they realize, you know, this happens occasionally. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, we just, everyone has to be consistent on this. You have a fantastic passage, brief passage, briefer than the one I previously read, <laughs> which I want to read. Oh, here it is. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. Um, there is a further distinction rarely understood between hate speech laws, which dictate that a citizen may not pro- transgress the voluntary social contract and legislation that prohibits speech as a means to commit a crime, laws against fraud, libel, perjury, blackmail, and espionage are not violations of one's freedom of speech. They are examples of where speech has operated as the mechanism of criminal activity, but is not the crime itself. Speech is to perjury what fire is to arson. Certainly, we can use words to commit crime. The same could be said of almost anything. Water, bricks, golf clubs, even stuffed halibuts. But in a murder case, we punish the killer, not the weapon. Yes, there are sensible restrictions on dangerous devices or substances, but speech is integral to the human spirit and hardly comparable with guns, knives and poison. It would take quite a pessimistic leap of the imagination to suppose otherwise. Um, really, I mean, I'm repeating a lot of things you say in the book because um, the the uh, you do a fantastic line in arguing in this book. Thank um, you. <laughs> and I f- feel it's really it's anybody who, like me, is frustrated. Uh, mm. trying to answer the same objections over and over again um, well, should read this because you provide a lot of extremely good intellectual ammunition. Well, part, I mean, that's also part of the reason I wanted to write it. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit tired of fending off the same queries. At least now I can say, look, I've, I've, ri- I've written it. It's in the book. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, th- this, this is a common one, but it's often used as a tactic to try and undermine those who advocate for free speech. You know, they'll say, oh yeah, but you, you what about, uh, you know, blackmail, or what about uh, perjury? You know, or libel. You know, is, you, you're clearly that what they're trying to do there is they're trying to suggest that you're not actually a free speech absolutist because there are limit. Everyone has limits on speech, and so I'm trying to. I'm, I, I wanted to address that point that it's it's not the same thing. Free speech defenders of free speech are not saying that anyone should be allowed to go around libeling and blackmailing people you know that's not what any that's not what anyone's saying that's a misunderstanding and they think it's a gotcha but it's actually a misunderstanding of the argument Mm, yeah yeah it's really freedom of expression or even Mm. freedom of expression of a 
opinion, although I think that that's a little bit, to say it's freedom of expression of opinion is, is too narrowing, because it's also freedom of expression to say, fuck off. And that's yeah. not really an opinion. Um, and likewise, it's freedom of expression to create a painting, for example, and that's also not really an opinion, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that point about telling someone to fuck off, you know, I think one of the things I'm trying to push in the book is that actually I believe in civility and I believe we should be encouraging civility in society and 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 urging people to be polite and be, and we should be disapproving of those who are abusive. You know, but what we shouldn't be doing is legislating against it. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. Mm, yeah. So, you know, and I, I go on at length about this because I just think, uh, you know, I, I would, I'd rather live in a world where everyone was pleasant to each other, but I, I don't, and I don't want someone being locked up or arrested for being rude to me, but mm. I will remove myself from that situation. So I don't have to talk to that person. And that's my responsibility. Yeah. I I really liked the way that you talked also about um the kind of uh o- the kind of um culture that is described I think the people who who describe it best um are Bradley and Campbell in the rise of victimhood culture and mm-hmm. then the some of Bradley and Campbell's ideas also make their way so I don't mean to imply they they plagiarize them but also uh, are re-expressed re-examined in um the Coddling of the American Mind, Lukianov mm. and Jonathan Haidt's book. Yes. Um, which I, I interviewed um, Haidt and Lukianov on, on that book also, and Bradley and Campbell. Um, and that kind of, this sort of idea that the misunderstanding, for one thing, of that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Yeah. But that is that's not descriptive it's kind of aspirational it's yes um, yes obviously words can hurt um and i think we all know this um and um but nevertheless your aim is to try to get beyond the hurt rather than somehow seeing the hurt as first of all something that you should be completely shielded and protected from yeah and also as being as being even a kind of um, even a even a kind of badge of identity, that your yes. identity should be tied up in how much you are harmed or hurt by certain opinions. Um, yeah. it's an extremely infantilizing um, way of looking at things. It goes against everything that a mental health professional would would suggest. It's not healthy on an individual mental level, and it's also um, it's kind of it's denying an important aspect of of human existence, and you say this very beautifully here. You write um, an overdiagnostic culture has reframed distress and emotional pain as forms of mental illness rather than aspects of a healthy human existence. To mm-hmm. feel upset is not an aberration; it is a sign that we are alive. I loved yes. that. Thank you. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I think it's it's very important. I mean, the the, the idea that we should. I mean, uh, Lukianov and Haidt talk about this in their in their book as well. The idea that actually to to entire if you are traumatized, for instance, by something or by certain phrases or ideas, that to shield yourself from ever encountering those phrases again or to put a ban on those words, it's actually the worst thing you can do. Mm. Just uh, all, all therapists will tell you this that it's it's not good for you. I mean, I support everyone's right to 
you know um curate their social media as, as they want and and to and you know n- and to listen to the things they want to listen to and if something is hurting them then they can remove themselves from that situation and i get that but but the the discourse that surrounds things such as trigger warnings um is is flies completely in the face of all sound advice uh from the experts in this field which is that we you know we it, it's it's not good for us to to shield off an aspect of reality that that causes us harm, emotional harm. It's not the way that we will get over it. And everyone everyone knows this. This is sort of, you know, this is a given. And yet you hear the catastrophizing language that you alluded to. I mean, some some activists will say things like, uh, this opinion that you hold is is erasing my existence, is denying my reality, all the rest of it. And this is, it is infantile. You know, no, nobody is erasing anyone's existence. That isn't happening. You know, even someone who says they don't approve of same-sex relations isn't erasing gay people. I mean, that that's such a such a rhetorical leap to take. And what concerns me is that people believe it. They believe it is an existential personal crisis uh, when other people don't approve of who or what they are or use certain language about them, which is a a, a real weakness of character. Um, that I think I'm not blaming anyone for that. I think it has been something that has been fostered culturally and societally, but, uh, you know, I worry about it. Mm. Yeah. Andrew, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say or anything you wish <laughs> I'd asked you? Yes, you've censored me. You haven't. Uh, no, 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 no. Not at all. I, I you know, I'm, I, I feel you've, you've uh, covered a lot of ground here. But this is a, this is a discussion that will go on, uh, on and on in various uh forums and and uh, as it should because i think it is it is one of the most important discussions of our time i am disturbed by the the way in which people are just casually dismissing ideas of free speech uh as as right-wing talking points you hear that a lot and i just think this is scary stuff you know we we, we have to restate this case otherwise we're in danger of losing this f- most foundational of liberties yeah absolutely Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, I will put all the information about uh, how to get the book and uh, how where to find you in the show notes. Um, Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.